Dear listeners, welcome to Faces of Digital Health, a podcast about digital health and how healthcare systems around the world adopt technology with me, Tiasha Zaitz. Therapies for cancer are being developed at light speed and upwards of 60 gene and cell therapies are projected to reach regulatory approval in the US by 2030, according to the MIT Nudix Collaborative. Due to the nature of cancer, the readiness for risk in drug development is much higher here than it might be in other medical fields. In this episode, you're going to hear a bit more about what can digital health innovation learn from the mindset present in oncology innovation. I talked with Sean Cozin, the CEO of CancerLink, which is a non-profit tech company focused on improving quality of care and health outcomes for all patients with cancer. Sean was previously the global head of data strategy and data science innovation at Johnson & Johnson. He was also the co-founder of Halo Health, a tech company focused on developing integrated telemedicine, point-of-care data visualization, and advanced analytics systems for optimizing patient care in clinical research. And somewhere along the line, he was also the founding director of a digital health incubator inside the FDA. We talked about all this, a little bit about processes in oncology, innovation in oncology, the promise of decentralized clinical trials, and more. Enjoy the show, and to browse through other episodes as well, visit facesofdigitalhealth.com. If you haven't yet, subscribe to the podcast to be notified about new episodes automatically. Now let's dive in. So Sean, you're a trained oncology specialist who's also a programmer, so in essence, a dream employee for any health tech company because you've got the tech knowledge and you've got the clinical knowledge as well. So just as a quick warm-up question, how do you see that your perspective on digital health innovation differs from a doctor's perspective that doesn't have a tech background or, on the other hand, the perspective of tech people that perhaps think that more is possible than it is because they don't have the clinical uh, knowledge? Sure. Thank you for the kind words, by the way. So I typically refer to physicians like me as being bilingual, meaning uh, being fluent both in the language of medicine and technology. And I personally think this has given me an objective understanding of essentially two important realities. First, I recognize that not all challenges in medicine have uh, a tech solution. So I try to pay close attention to navigating my way through the hype cycles that we've seen in recent years. Second, I think bilingual folks like me are, or try to be at least, keenly aware of opportunities in biomedical research and healthcare that, in fact, do have tech solutions or can be solved with data science and advanced analytical methods. So I've always tried to focus on what is pragmatically possible today and what I must do to unlock opportunities in the near future, things that maybe we can't do today, but we have to start to set the groundwork to leverage the opportunities in the future. Many of us have known for a very long time that there's a lot of value in telemedicine, but not necessarily many of today's implementations that tend to be fragmented and episodic. They're not really integrated into the flow of care. So in the U.S. during the COVID uh, pandemic, there was a rapid increase in the use of telemedicine. But more recently, there was a significant drop in the visits. That surprised a lot of people, but not those of us that recognize that the current implementations are not sustainable nor scalable. Another uh, example is that it has been very obvious to many of us that big data isn't necessarily the solution to many of our challenges in biomedicine today. Not to say that data is not important, but this concept of big data uh, may not be a uh, hammer for every nail. A few years ago, I wrote an article in Nature Review's Drug Discovery 
called From Big Data to Smart Data, where I was trying to point uh, out the fact that just like algorithms, data needs to be engineered to allow training of robust algorithms and the volume of the data alone is only one dimension of big data. And there, there are other dimensions of big data that are as important, if not more important. And those dimensions are velocity, you know, how quickly we're measuring the data and analyzing it, variety, the different types of data we are capturing, and also veracity. And these are computational concepts that define big data beyond uh, just the volume. So at the time, this was a very contrarian view, but it's uh, great for me to see that recently folks like Andrew Ang, who's been in, a leader in the world of AI and machine learning, started to talk about these themes under a new umbrella called the data-centric AI, meaning that over the years, we've captured large volumes of data that may not have been fit for purpose, and we've trained a lot of great algorithms. And now it's time to uh, move towards a more data-centric way of thinking about this domain. And this is what I used to call going from big data to smart data. The idea that now we're, we're in a great uh, position to start to engineer the data that we need to feed into our algorithms. It's an interesting concept to talk about AI as data-centric because I would consider it is data-centric by default. Well, it should be. And I think uh, there was uh, a few years ago, there was at the peak of the big data hype cycle, let's say, there was a lot of emphasis on just volume. And, and the thinking was that we can train algorithms that can improve the signal to noise ratio. And in some cases, that has actually been quite the case. But we haven't really seen any scalable models that have used noisy data and biomedicine to be able to make the type kinds of predictive algorithms that one could incorporate into existing work workflows with confidence. They are predictive and a lot of these algorithms tend to be quite impressive, but the risks associated with the uncertainties of the prediction in the context of biomedical research and healthcare outweigh the potential benefits. So these algorithms haven't truly scaled. So now we've we're in a, in a position that we have trained, we have amazing an amazing foundation, a lot of great algorithms that have been engineered using less than ideal data. So now we can hold, in a way, the algorithms constant. We can take a deep breath and stand back and start to shift our focus to engineering the data in order to make the algorithms that we have already refined in, in the last few years, fine-tuned in terms of their predictions. And I believe what that can do is increase the confidence in the output of these algorithms so that some of the hesitation about their use in biomedical research or the healthcare setting can be addressed more appropriately. And it could probably make people uh, a lot more confident if the data is engineered to meet the needs of, of the algorithms in terms of their precision and accuracy of prediction. Do you think that AI models could ever really be scalable? There's various uh, reasons why the transfer or, of AI models is problematic when you go from one healthcare institutions from the other. But just uh, judging by the fact that uh, clinical guidelines are not the same across the world makes it really difficult to imagine that algorithms developed under one guidelines would be uh, approved by a set of clinicians that believe in other guidelines. That's a great question. I think the way I see it, if uh, the current trend continues, the guidelines of the future will be algorithms, essentially allowing us to extract data from the real world. And uh, that's something that has already been done and a lot of great efforts that are focused on extracting real world data. And then using that data in a uh, data-centric way, meaning engineering that data or the right elements of that data to make predictions about how to best optimize the care of a patient. And 
delivering those algorithms and the predictions to physicians and clinicians as essentially decision support tools that are more near real time. A lot of guidelines take months to update and they don't necessarily include the needs and experiences of individual patients. They're really more about the aggregate experience of patients that are either enrolled in clinical trials or are part of other studies or meta-analyses. They're generalizations in a lot of cases. So in order for us to bring more precision into how we deliver care, I believe the guidelines of the future will be essentially algorithms that are delivered to the point of care and put in the hands of clinicians and physicians as decision support tools. I want to uh, talk a little bit more about decision support uh, tools a little bit later down the discussion. But just before that, I really wonder, in one of your previous roles, you were the founding executive director of the FDA's first multidisciplinary science and technology incubator, InfoMed. And I'm sure that many people are unfamiliar that there was actually an incubator inside the FDA. So can you tell me a little bit more about that? How did that look like and what's happening with that project now? Sure. Um, Inform was what one of my colleagues used to call a very bold and venturesome effort, and it stands for Information Exchange and Data Transformation. And it's one of the primary reasons that I went to federal government. There's a very interesting story behind that and how it came about. But in summary, I was uh, lucky to get special authorities from the Department of Health and Human Services in the United States. The administration at the time under President Obama had created new hiring authorities to bring entrepreneurs and residents to federal government. Essentially, my pitch at the time to HHS was that we're at an inflection point in biomedicine, just like we were at an inflection point in the 40s when the Department of Defense launched the national labs and really changed the course of history with their first few projects. And let me use the authorities that have been created uh, in the new administration to launch a data science and technology incubator at the FDA. And again, I was lucky enough to be granted those authorities, which allowed me to bring new talent to federal government, including entrepreneurs and, and residents. And the reason behind that was uh, the administration at the time wanted to bring entrepreneurship and technology and that kind of agile thinking to government in order to bring more efficiencies in terms of how government functions across all different sectors. They actually created a new group called the U.S. Digital Services that were part of that movement. And they supported efforts such as FDA Inform to address specific challenges within each agency. And I was at, at the FTA and we launched Inform. And to give you an idea of what it looked like, so I, I brought in a lot of entrepreneurs and residents. It was a very multidisciplinary team that included also physicians, biostatisticians, and really gave them a sandbox to collaborate and to ideate. And we also started to develop a portfolio of public-private collaborations. And we wanted to de-risk innovations that were consistent with the mission of the FDA, which was to, which is to advance public health and to advance things that can expedite the development and delivery of safe and effective therapies for patients. So we started to uh, work with a lot of startups to help them de-risk their innovations. And there was also this idea that we want to encourage entrepreneurship in the United States and, and having these collaborative frameworks and public private collaboration frameworks can not only de-risk these tools that will naturally be infused into drug development, but it could support the generation and catalyzing a new generation of innovations and startups that are consistent with how the United States historically has supported innovation, both in the private and the public sector. So helping de-risk those innovations was one of our 
uh, priorities. And we realized that when a, for example, when a technology enterprise fails or when a clinical trial fails, nobody wins. Clearly, the investors and the founders don't win. But most importantly, patients don't win. So if we don't help de-risk these innovations, then we prolong the period of experimentation with patients. And if they're not deriving any benefit from these solutions, it's better to know that fast. And it's actually better to help these innovators pivot their way through success. So that was the underpinning of Inform. And again, it was a very multidisciplinary construct. We had a lot of companies that we were working with in, in our portfolio, including Flatiron and Psyapps, Boda, a lot of the early start that were really uh, interested in the use of data in, in new ways and really bringing that data into the toolbox of drug development and with the idea of capturing the patient experience in new ways. And then internally, we had a horizontal framework that included all the centers at the FDA and including the CDRH devices. And eventually we went beyond the FDA and started to incubate and, and launch projects and studies at NCI and at other government agencies, but also recognize that we need more bilingual folks that are well-versed in the language of technology, but also medicine to a couple of fellowship programs. So we started to be very proactive in terms of training the next generation of bilingual folks. So we had a uh, fellowship program with NCI for radiation oncologists, and we started a uh, fellowship program in artificial intelligence and machine learning with Harvard that uh, was focused on training data scientists and bringing them to, to our sandbox and so that we could expose them to the realities of drug development and biomedicine. So it was a very comprehensive, ended up being a very comprehensive program. And after I left the FDA, the program was incorporated into FDA's technology modernization plans, broadly speaking. Are there any solutions that stand out for you that came out of those efforts? Yeah, absolutely. I think at the federal level, I think federal government can do a, a tremendous amount of work that is beneficial to patients, but also to companies that are trying to help patients that are disruptive innovation in healthcare and biomedicine is very hard to do. It's not for the faint of heart. And it's to the benefit of everyone to make sure that these tools and technologies are de-risked and the ones that can truly help patients find a way, find their way in, in the hands of patients and consumers. What I learned was that the federal government, by creating new mechanisms, can be very effective in advancing innovation in the private sector in a way that it's transparent, democratic, but most importantly, in a way that expedites the delivery of new innovations that can advance the health and well-being of society, which is really, if we think about it, what we want out of our government agencies, that we want them to facilitate and expedite the de delivery of policies and tools and solutions that benefit society. I guess the slow speed of uh, moving innovation from theory to practice is one of the most frustrating things in healthcare and medicine. And we definitely want technologies to be implemented in healthcare faster. And I guess one of the programs that's trying to do that is the FDA's Breakthrough Device Program. So I wanted to pick your brain uh, on that a little bit because the program is helping device manufacturers efficiently address topics that arise already during the pre-market review phase. But when companies say that they got a breakthrough device designation, that really makes it sound that they created a rocket ship, whereas maybe there was a solution that just went through a mo more effective process and came to the market faster than it would uh, in the old ways of working. So 
What do you think about this program? The Breakthrough Device Program, and also there's a Breakthrough Therapy Designation Program for Drugs and Biologics. They are intended to mobilize the expertise of the FDA to advance the development of breakthrough innovations. And so the FDA does put additional resources behind working with companies that have a breakthrough designated device or product to help them figure out how to design their studies and, and uh, clinical trials to bring these solutions to the market. So it, it is helpful and the FDA tries to be much more proactive and flexible in working with companies that have these breakthrough designated devices or drugs. But I understand that you know, a lot of companies may want to use it to secure investments and in their public relations activities. I'm sure a lot of that goes on, but there is there the, the there are benefits from getting breakthrough therapy designation was for a device or a drug. I'll give you one example. The first breakthrough therapy designated drug for solid tumor was when I was at the FDA. It was for a drug called Serednet. So Serednet basically had a very large effect size in a very handful of patients. Basically, the company, this, is, this has been published and is in the public domain. So the company approached the FDA with a small number of patients. And it was very early evidence of clinical activity in a handful of patients that was beyond what you uh, would expect. So these, uh, for drugs, the effect size has to be so large that you, you can easily tell that this is an effective drug. The same thing you know, applies to, to devices. It has to really stand uh, above the rest. And when that happened, essentially, we worked with, with a company to design the evidence package and the studies that are required to get the drug to approval because it really addressed a, what we call a large unmet medical need. Essentially, these patients really had no other options. So again, this is an example of an enlightened sort of strategy within federal government, working with the private sector to advance innovations that can help patients. So Seretna, from the time that the company started the program, opened an IND to approval was a little less than four years. That's amazing. Meaning most uh, development programs, as you can take years, sometimes decades. Uh, so four years from the first study to approval is pretty amazing. But more importantly, after breakthrough therapy designation from the time that the NDA, meaning the drug application was submitted to the FDA, it was approved in three months. Usually the, the clock is 10 months to uh, a little over a year, depending on which program you're part of. But the drug was approved in three months. Why? Because there was so much engagement with the company before the application for drug approval even came in. So when there is breakthrough therapy designation, the com companies have additional mechanisms to engage with the FDA. So that when they actually submit the application for the eventual approval of the device or for the drug, the approval can happen in a couple of months in a lot of cases. In oncology specifically, the development is happening really fast. There's a lot of interest from the uh, industry side to invest in new technologies. If we look at the statistics, uh, upwards of 60 gene and cell therapies are projected to reach regulatory approval in the U.S. by 2030, according to MIT, NewDig's collaborative. From that perspective, the development that's happening in oncology really got me thinking uh, about what we can learn about the mindset and research approach in oncology and how that can be transferred to digital health, for example. So can you maybe talk a little bit more about the drug development process in oncology and reflect the potential of transferring uh, that mindset into digital health innovation? Sure, that's a great question. Uh, there are unique features to oncology drug development and the regulatory pathway. I think when we assess risk and benefit, there's a much higher tolerance for risk because in most cases, these drugs are being developed for patients that really have no options. And in many cases, in the advanced 
disease stage, overall survival without any new therapies is two or three, six months at the most. So there is a lot more appetite for risk. And that, I believe, makes it a little, I don't want to say easier, but brings more certainty to what you can expect from the regulators, because there is a higher tolerance for risk and patients accept that. And the regulatory authorities go by that community consensus. What do patients expect? What is within? What is reasonable? So I think that has, that's one aspect of it, but it's not everything. I think um, the voice of the patient in cancer and oncology, in the world of oncology, tends to be quite powerful in a lot of cases. And that can really expedite research and also development. So I think patient advocacy groups uh, that represent cancer patients have done a great job in making a case for these innovations to be expedited to the extent that's possible. And at times that requires a little bit of flexibility and industry and academia have responded to that. And so there is this spirit of experimentation and innovation as a result of the fact that the demand is high, there is regulatory certainty that has driven industry and academia to invest significant time and resources to advancing these uh, innovations. So it's, I believe it's all interconnected, but I think really one of the driving forces is patient engagement and you can call that consumer uh, engagement and having that voice being reflected in the discussions can go a long way. There have been many examples where patients and consumers themselves have been the true catalyst for bringing innovation. I mean, in the early days of the HIV, I think we saw the patient advocacy community really coming together and expediting the development, but also the review and approval of the first HIV medications that, that were approved. And, and that advocacy can go a long way. So obviously HIV is another example where it's a serious condition that galvanized society and, and, and a lot of advocacy groups. And that voice reached a point that it brought tremendous amount of resources from academia and also industry that was coupled with regulatory flexibility. In fact, they, they accelerated the approval pathway in the United States that the FDA has been using to expedite the approval of all drugs, including oncology, oncology drugs, was a legislation that occurred during the HIV epidemic in, in, in the U.S. So I think having the end users, the consumers, the patients expressing their voice in an, in as a collective in a way that it reaches the right people can have a tremendous impact on how we advance innovation. You know, with, with digital health, if we're talking about incorporating digital health in, in oncology clinical trials, for example, we can extrapolate from that experience because a lot of cancer patients in clinical trials believe that maybe the endpoints we're using are not important to them. If the tumor is five centimeters versus three centimeters, what does that really mean? So can we capture their experience with digital health solutions? So patients are starting to, and advocacy groups, talk about the patient experience and capturing the patient experience, which has had a tremendous amount of impact on, on thinking about how to incorporate digital health solutions into oncology clinical development programs, but also at the point of routine care. But for other indications and other diseases, where we don't have patient advocacy, things can certainly lag behind in drug development, but also in the digital health domain. If we try to zoom out a little bit and broaden the understanding, the basic understanding of how the, the how oncology is advancing in 2018, one of the th the things that we like to talk about is precision medicine, personalized medicine. But if you look at studies in 2018, the JAMA Oncology study estimated that only 8% of patients with cancer are eligible for precision medications approved as of January 2018. And only 5% would actually benefit from that. So that's 
four years ago already, so it's a little bit old, but I raised these statistics just for us to highlight how has oncology treatment changed in the last 10 years, to which extent are survival rates improving and to which extent are new therapies more or less improving the quality of life of patients, but not longevity and just the basic essence of approaching how cancer is treated. Not to say that the improvement of the quality of life is something that is not very important. It's crucial, obviously. Sure. I think it takes, uh, there's usually a lag between drug approvals and our ability to detect a, an improvement in overall survival at the population level. I think more recently we're starting to see that. So I agree. It's important to look at how we're having an impact on prolonging survival or other endpoints that may be important. So that's where I think having access to the right data sets is critical because in the United States, for example, we have the NCI and also the CDC that does a lot of tracking. And there's a report that's published, it's called Cancer Statistics, but that talks about where we are today. And it's, it's an annual report, basically. But that data doesn't contain a lot of granularity in terms of disease types, subtypes, that's where having access to those data sets and data sharing becomes very important to understand uh, what impact at the population level our drug approvals are having. And I think we need to do more of those exercises. Unfortunately, the data that would, can accommodate and facilitate those ex exercises are still, for the most part, fragmented and stuck in silos. I think if folks had access, for example, to the raw data that supports clinical trials when they are published or when they approved by regulatory agencies, there could be additional means and new means of looking at how the performance of these drugs in the real world compared to what we see in clinical trials. Are we actually seeing improvements in the real world? What's very clear right now is that Emerging evidence, in fact, does suggest that the experience of patients in the real world tends to be a little inferior from what we observe in clinical trials. There are many different reasons for that. The use of real-world data and real-world evidence in recent years is giving us a window into what is happening at the population level as we approve therapies. We are moving the needle, um, but it's hard to say exactly by how much and for whom. Since you mentioned the real-world data in clinical trials, one of the topics that's uh, very popular to discuss in digital health lately are also decentralized clinical trials. How would you describe their potential? I think there's a tremendous amount of potential. And I, I think if we think about it, clinical trials haven't changed uh, since uh, the 1800s in a way, when James Lind, the famous Scottish surgeon, did the first scurvy trials. In fact, that was a pragmatic trial because it actually occurred in the natural setting where the sailors were, and it was really the first randomized uh, study that showed the citrus fruit, now we know it was vitamin C, is uh, can help prevent uh, scurvy. And essentially, the way we conduct clinical trials has remained more or less the same. Since World War II, we have made tremendous improvements in the ethical conduct of clinical research, you know, good clinical practice guidelines, which emerge out of the tenets of the Nuremberg trials. So we've improved on the ethical practices of clinical research. But for the most part, the way that we conduct clinical trials have remained the same. So it's time for a, an upgrade. And I think decentralized clinical trials can accommodate that. And in order to demystify what decentralized clinical trials are, organically, things are, in a way, moving in that direction. For example, especially since the COVID pandemic, a lot of what we do in clinical trials has been decentralized. And what I mean by decentralization is that you could decentralize the decentralized clinical studies across two different axes. Where you collect the data, is it in like a cent centralized location? and how you collect the data, what method you use to collect the data. Historically, 
a lot of the data along the method of data collection access has been collected in a decentralized way. Well, a lot of times uh, you make a phone call and to administer questionnaire, for example, that's decentralized data collection, not asking the patient to come to a cent centralized um, location. And your method of data collection is essentially telemedicine, not just video. Telephony is also telemedicine, something that people forget. It's telemedicine is a virtual synchronous remote connection to the patient, whether it's a telephone or a text message, SMS or video. So we've been doing that in clinical trials. Now, what happened during the pandemic, we start to incorporate more video telemedicine as people know it today. But so that's decentralized. And then as we do that, we can get closer to, to collecting the data from where patients are. For a lot of what we need to collect, we don't really necessarily need to bring the patient to a centralized location. And the more we do remote connect data collection, the more we can experiment with different ways of capturing the patient experience and and reduce the reliance on intermediaries for data collection. As if somebody's coming to the clinic, they have to wait in the waiting room and then they get their exam, their vitals, and they ask a series of questions. But that's the traditional centralized way. And there's an intermediary uh, that collects that data, a human. But as we make clinical trials more decentralized, then we can start to incorporate passive data collection into how, into, into how we collect the data in clinical trials. And by passive, instead of asking people about their activities of daily, daily living using standard questionnaires, whether it's in, in the office or via telemedicine, we can track their activities using a sensor, using a smartwatch. And that's passive. There's no human intermediary collecting that data and the beauty of that passive collection is that it can be continuous and it can give us a much more nuanced and higher resolution view about that patient's activities of day daily living uh, or performance status, as we call it in the world of oncology, uh, that has a very important, plays a very important role in how we design clinical studies. And most patients, for example, in traditional clinical trials, that have a poor performance status are excluded. So a lot of our inclusion and exclusion criteria are dependent on subjective means of data collection with questionnaires that um, can be done remotely, passively in the context of a decentralized clinical trial ecosystem. We're moving in that direction. And I believe there are a lot of opportunities and we're still at the at a very early stages of clinical trial decentralization. What would you say are some of the key limitations uh, or obstacles to decentralized clinical trials? For example, if you rely on bring your own devices approach, then you can again exclude patients that are uh, coming from underserved communities or in Europe, language can be a huge barrier that would uh, prevent you from creating a clinical trial across Europe where you've got different healthcare systems, you've got different languages, you've got different healthcare data standards that are used. Just from the wording perspective, one might think that when you say decentralized clinical trials, that would mean that patients will have an easier access to clinical trials just because they can stay at home and try something out and just measure things from home. But that's not necessarily true. So what do you see as the main kind of barriers? Sure. I think there's a lack of uh, standardization in terms of both logistically how one would design a decentralized study and what are the logistics that in, are involved. So we need standardization there. And I, I mentioned good clinical practice guidelines earlier. So that was the backbone that gave us a blueprint in terms of how to logistically design and conduct modern clinical trials. So we need good clinical practice guidelines for decentralized uh, clinical research. And in fact, we can extrapolate from the existing body uh, of work that has already been done because this is more about the logistics of conducting 
decentralized clinical research and can really extrapolate from what we're already doing and demystify how one would conduct and design a decentralized clinical trial. So standardization in terms of logistics and the process of conducting these clinical trials. But also we need standardization at the technical level. You mentioned to bring your own devices. Not only it may exclude underserved communities, it can bring heterogeneity to how the data is captured. So having modern standards that are consistent across all these devices can go a long way. I think slowly but surely we're moving in that direction, but a technical standardization is going very slow. And that could be its own hours-long discussion. Yeah, going back to the big data, smart data problem, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think I think we're moving into a world where there might be organically, as these devices scale, it's going to converge around a set of standards that are interoperable. Because uh, as an example, if you download an app on your smartphone that doesn't work with any other app, well, that app is not very interesting anymore. Gone are those days that you could do everything within a single app. Now, there's a lot of organic interoperability among apps on your average smartphone. And this was essentially, it was an incentive that these app developers had to make sure that they're interoperable. Because no one app developer can boil the ocean and give a single solution to every user. So they had to bring open APIs and interoperability into how they design apps. I'm hoping and I think that the same spirit is going to bring more interoperability in how we develop digital health solutions and apps. Because a digital health solution that is just standing there alone is probably going to lose a competitive advantage. But a digital health solution that the patient, the user, but also folks that are using these devices to to design clinical trials that can be integrated into other devices will be much more attractive and much more in demand in a way. So I think organically, we're going to move in that direction. One of the things that you mentioned before was the impact that patients can have on technology and drug development, and also that the perception of what is a good treatment is changing. So you don't just look at how big the tumor is, but also how the patient is feeling. And patient-reported outcomes and patient-reported experiences are gaining in significance. So I wonder To which extent or how do you see that this shift in uh, thinking what's important is impacting what exactly are we even measuring and how that impacts technology development? Great. It's it's, it's having a major impact. The patient report outcomes, as you mentioned, have been a, a very integral part of conversations in the past decade in the drug development community and also has been important for regulators. What the, the challenge has been to accommodate seamless collection of the data. And usually traditional approach has focused on questionnaires that are hard to administer, they're too long and a lot of barriers there. And I think thinking about incorporation of digital health solutions in a way that it's attached and very close to patient preferences and individual preferences can give us a new generation of tools uh, that, again, going back to what I was saying earlier, could accommodate more passive collection of data rather than expecting patients to fill out a questionnaire with a hundred questions just so that we can assess their level of pain and mood. Maybe there are better ways to do that more passively, but it really starts, I think, from really understanding patient preferences, which is is something that a lot of people have been trying to incorporate into direct development, but hasn't really scaled. And then designing digital health solutions that are aimed at collecting data that speaks to those preferences. Uh, So I think it's a two-step process. And Surfacing the voice of consumers, patients, individuals is really the first step. And one of the challenges is that most individuals, they're not thinking about these things unless 
they either have um, a sickness in their family, a family member that gets sick, or they get sick themselves. But there has to be a way for infusing this into the general dialogue that we all have. And we all have to start to think about these things, no matter how healthy or sick we are. Because eventually everyone is going to have to deal with it. We definitely outlined several layers of complexity when it comes to cancer treatment. So I want to go back to the uh, clinician perspective a little bit and decision support systems. I think it's pretty clear that this is really difficult to tackle based on everything that we said. So before we go into that a little bit, can you describe how an oncology treatment and tre the treatment decision-making looks like from the doctor's perspectives? Yeah, oncologists uh, are quite unique physicians because they end up being the primary care physician for their patients, whereas other specialists, you don't see that in other specialties. For example, a cardiologist typically doesn't become the primary care provider for a patient. So that means that there, there are so many different aspects of a patient's care that you have to think about as an oncologist. Couple that with the fact that every week there's a new drug that's approved and we have really amazing new tools and technologies like genomic sequencing, but also germline sequencing that speaks to pre-cancer predisposition or may have an impact on how we choose a certain drug has reached a point that it's starting to create a lot of confusion in terms of how to use the available information to really personalize treatment decisions. We talked about guidelines earlier, and guidelines have been traditionally a way that physicians educate themselves in terms of how to treat patients and to personalize their treatment decisions. But I think a an oncologist today, if treating a cancer patient, they have many different therapies to choose from. Gone are the days that you have maybe one or two chemotherapy options. Now there's chemotherapy, there's target therapy, there's immunotherapy. And in some cases, there are a number of different therapies in the same class. But then on top of that, most patients nowadays are getting sequenced. They're getting their tumor sequenced. So... But all these mutations that we're discovering and variants that for every individual patient are quite different. So the totality of the mutations in the tumor at the individual level are quite different. Patients may have the same what we call driver mutation like EGFR, but they have a lot of what we call passenger mutations that may have an impact in, in, in terms of how to best design a personalized treatment plan for that patient. So let's add another layer of complexity. Now, patients are, are also having germline sequencing. Sometimes it's done formally as part of just standard of care. But a lot of times patients are just doing it themselves. Germline sequencing like companies like 23andMe. So there's a wealth of information there that is emerging that could have an impact in terms of how you treat a, a patient because a germline mutation tells you about intrinsic factors, hereditary, essentially, that are important at the individual level. And then your tumor sequencing information and the mutations that you identify tell you about the uh, characteristics of the cancer itself. So now oncologists have to think about, okay, here is the, the tumor kind of mutation milieu in the background of a, a germline mutation foundation, how do I use this information to pick the right therapy for the right patient at the right time? So delivering that kind of personalized care in oncology is becoming exceedingly complicated. And many oncologists can benefit from ways of interpreting this complex sea of data that now we're all we're collecting on each individual patient. Unfortunately, most of that data is not used in an optimal way. If you have, if you sequence, you sequence a tumor today, the report that you get back could be 30 pages. And that's just on one patient. And that's just a somatic tumor mutation. And then we've all seen what 
kind of information that germline um, sequencing gives you. You know, if we've done for folks have had experience doing this with companies like 23andMe and other ancestry and disease susceptibility genes that direct-to-consumer efforts provide individuals. And putting it all together requires algor- algorithmic thinking. We really need to start to bring algorithms into how we personalize care. So I think that's the world that oncologists are living in right now. It's highly complex. There's a lot of data and a lot of times for a lot of patients, the data that is already available uh, to us is not utilized in, in an efficient and effective way because it's just too much data that goes beyond the cognitive ability of a physician to absorb all of that data yeah, in order to personalize their treatment decisions. So we're at a stage right now where if we have the right tools and the right algorithms, we can start to personalize treatment decisions for the NL1. However, the pipelines aren't there yet. Not that technologically we can't do it. It's just that those pipelines haven't been laid yet. So... In practice, how does this impact in the development of technologies and decision support systems for oncology? And just as a completely plastic example, when the doctor sees patients and needs to determine what kind of set of treatments the patient is going to get, how does that look like? Does the doctor just take time to do some research in up-to-date and other databases, look at PDFs with uh, clinical guidelines and try to figure something out? What's the, the right. actual reality in clinical practice? Sure. Yeah, good, great question. I think i answer your second question first. Most physicians, if they look at guidelines and guidelines can only take you so far. So what they do is they think about, okay, have I seen a patient like the patient that's sitting in front of me before? So they go by personal individual experience and what we call clinical judgment or intuition. So there's still a lot of intuition and clinical judgment involved. And a step beyond that, if that doesn't solve the, the, the problem uh, that they're trying to address, they call the colleagues. There's a lot of peer-to-peer engagement that drives how we practice medicine today, especially in oncology. So there's that peer-to-peer engagement. And you also mentioned that, yes, there's a lot of up-to-date looking up, there's a lot of Googling, and but you have to also remember that not every physician have, may have the time to do that for every single patient. So is every single patient today benefiting from that peer-to-peer engagement or physician spending uh, enough time and up-to-date and le- reading the literature. So that, I don't know how to answer that, probably not, because there is uh, oncology is a very high-volume discipline. So where does that leave us when we think about technology? What can technology and digital health do? It's really about collecting the data surrounding the patient and using outcomes that already exist and insights that are already embedded within the data to make predictions and suggestions about how to best optimize treatment decisions for that patient. We have the data, we have the tools and the technologies that can accommodate and facilitate that. But the problem is that folks that have the data are are not the same people that have the tools and the technologies. So data availability is a huge problem. We have a lot of great tools and technologies that, uh, that unfortunately are not scaling because there's no access to the data. There's a lot of data hoarding that, that occurs. And folks that have the data in their vaults, but they're not willing to share in some cases or in other cases, they can't share. So I think there's a mismatch between the digital tools that we have that can really help patients, but they don't have the ammunition and the fuel, which is data. What is... Uh, really unfortunate, I believe, is the fact that the data exists. It's not like the data just doesn't exist. It's just not available. And thinking about how to make that data available to technology innovator and folks in the digital health space 
is, I believe, a now has become an ethical question almost. It is in the best interest of the patient. So hopefully, maybe that's something that the patient voice can address, but maybe there are other ways of making sure that there's data fluidity and the data is accessible to digital health innovators. Yeah, data availability is definitely a huge uh, challenge, but when it comes to sharing patient data, Patients usually, if they know that their data is going to be used for the greater good, are very open to the idea of sharing the data. So going back to the the problem that you mentioned, do you think that, I don't know, one of the solutions could be that patients would be the ones pushing their data to researchers that would be uh, interested in advancing that data, especially since... um, April last year, the 21st Century Cures Act requires healthcare providers to give patients access without charge. So in theory, access to healthcare data without a delay should be easier than it used to be. So maybe you can comment on to which extent that act is something that is out there but is not really helping too much in practice and to which extent is that a beginning of a better data fluidity? Sure. Yeah. It's, it's very, there are two different ways of thinking about this. One is data sharing, patients sharing their data for the greater good. And the other is sharing their own data so that they can benefit directly from it. For example, the example I gave, a cancer patient benefit, benefiting from the most personalized treatment regimen. So the patient sharing their data with the technology community can accommodate uh, direct benefit to the patient. Uh, and then you also mentioned sharing of data for research and for the greater good. So in the United States, as part of the 21st Century Cures Act, there's a very interesting provision that mentions the use of smart on fire APIs in, in terms of allowing patients access to their data, not medical records. We're talking about the raw data with little to no effort. That's actually how it's characterized, meaning with a push of a button. So they, Congress directed the Office of the National Coordinator in the United States to enforce this. And historically, electronic health record vendors have exercised something that in this legislation was referred to as information blocking, meaning they block access to the data and to patients' records, even when it's the the, the patient themselves that want to access the data. So the 21st Century Cures Act called for an end to information blocking by the use of these smart on fire APIs. And all EHR companies in the United States, pretty much all of them have started to incorporate these APIs. And the Office of the National Coordinator will start enforcing them in December of 2022. A lot of technology innovators have noticed this. In fact, Apple was one of the first companies that that picked up on this. And if you, in the United States, if you have an iOS device, if you go to your health app, you have an electronic health record feature in your health app. And in most cases, with literally a push of a button in less than probably five minutes, could extract a lot of your data from different health systems. It's brilliant. And the idea in the U.S. at least is that so the patient becomes the individual that brings data sharing and even interoperability in, in, in a sense to the biomedical data ecosystem. And it's going to be interesting to see how this uh, evolves. Even the, the federal government in the U.S. hasn't started strictly enforcing this rule, but there's already a lot of data sharing that's starting to happen using the smart on fire APIs. And I believe this can really change how the data flows, at least in the US, and it can really power a new generation of digital health solutions and apps that communicate with each other and bring direct benefit to the patient. If we go back to to oncology for uh, one more minute, how would you assess the state of healthcare IT solutions for oncology? In one of your past roles, you were also the co-founder of Halo Health. So it's a technology company optimizing patient care and clinical research with smart use of data and analytics. That's what I 
uh, gathered from the description. So how, what would you say? Healthcare IT, many problems. What's the situation in oncology, which, as we elaborated in detail, is very complex on its own? Sure, in, in oncology, but this uh, also can apply through other specialties. I think it's very important for us to figure out new means of connecting with patients, telemedicine, but also other asynchronous virtual means of connecting with patients in a structured, organized way. And also in oncology, it's also very important to think about how we uh, are measuring the patient's experience and also how we're collecting objective information and data. So if you think about it, for the most part, the way we even diagnose a patient with, with cancer, when we say somebody has lung cancer, why do we say the patient has lung cancer? Because it's a tumor that's in the lung. Well, that's easy. And so why do we say that? There's actually a historical reason for that because Surgeons used to take care of cancer patients before there were medical oncologists, and they have had an anatomical classification schema. So lung cancer is lung cancer, which is a tumor in the lung. Easy. And then we had the microscope, and we started to visualize and characterize these tumors histologically. So we realized that lung cancer is has different subtypes, small cell and non-small cell. How did this come about? Because we characterize the size of the cells based on what we see. If they're small, where that's a specific subtype. If the cells are not small, we don't call it large. Why? Because the ones that are not small are of different sizes. So we called it non-small. And then large cell is a subtype of non-small. So if you think about this, it's all based on human observation and then a linguistic characterization of what we see. And then that has continued to stay. What's very interesting to me is that a lot of AI algorithms and a lot of digital health innovators are trying to take this uh, subjective sensory way of describing disease to train their algorithms. It's not very useful to me as an oncologist if I have an AI device or a digital health device that tells me, oh, this patient has non-sponsored lung cancer. I can do that myself. I can just look at a microscope and say, this patient has non-sponsored lung cancer, or my pathologist can't do that. What I'm really interested in is for these technologies and solutions to tell me what I cannot see or hear or sense or touch. And that's where we come to unsupervised learning in AI. But we really have to start to rethink our gold standards. In some cases... Yes, what we have today is a gold standard. But in many other ca cases, these are just artifacts of history that are really just based on human sensory input. So if I have a tumor specimen, I would like my AI algorithm to tell me what I don't see. What are the subtypes that you know I cannot even see with the human eye? And it doesn't matter what you call them, subtype X, subtype, subtype Y. The reason that a lot of drugs, cancer drugs, but also other drugs don't work in a lot of patients is because we're essentially misclassifying these patients. And when I say somebody has lung cancer and we give a drug, historically we have, for example, chemotherapy that had a response rate of 30%. We call it doublet chemotherapy in non-small cell lung cancer. The response rate at best was 30%. 38% of the patients responded. Well, but then we had these targeted therapies where we have a non-small cell lung cancer with, let's say, an EGFR mutation. This response rate there is 60%. That biomarker is making our diagnosis more accurate, but still not 100% accurate. If we have a 100% accurate diagnosis, you match that diagnosis with the right drug and nearly everyone, 100%, from a mathematical perspective, should respond. If you have less than 100 patients respond, then there's something wrong with how you're classifying that patient. So that's what I want our AI algorithms to do. Um, sure, it may be efficient or it may help someone to validate that, yeah, this patient has non-small cell lung cancer with an AI algorithm, but tell me more. Tell me what I can see and what I don't see so we could start to maximize 
the efficacy of the treatments we already have. We could just start with the drugs we already have. Let's start to reduce the number needed to treat. In the double chemotherapy example, I told you at that time, the number needed to treat with double chemotherapy was eight. So for every eight patient that we treated, one patient benefited. That's benefit meaning tumor shrinkage and prolongation of survival. With target therapies, number needed to treat is two for the most potent target therapies. For two patients we treat, one benefits. Still, the other half are not benefiting. Tremendous progress. So let's figure out using our tools and technologies how to classify patients in a different way so that when we treat them, nearly everyone benefits because that's the goal. At the end of the day, that's precision medicine. You've been listening to Faces of Digital Health. If you enjoyed the show, do leave a rating or a review wherever you get your podcast. It can be very simple if you just go to lovethepodcast.com slash faces of digital health and you'll be redirected to the platform appropriate for your device. Additionally, if you enjoyed the show, do subscribe to the podcast to be notified about new episodes automatically. Stay tuned! Stay tuned!